Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with a code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs, Keys to Interprofessional Collaboration to Improve Dementia Care. I am Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. As a reminder, if you are joining us for the live course and your state license requires live CEUs, be sure to complete all course modules, including the one that says quiz, before the end of the day today on your speechtherapypd.com account. We encourage questions from our participants. You can put your questions in the chat box for our guests to answer throughout the episode. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. Natalie Douglas is a professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Central Michigan University and an editor of the adult section of Informed SLP. She receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this presentation. And now we welcome our guest today, Dr. Natalie Douglas, PhD, CCC, SLP. Natalie has spent the last 20 years supporting people living with dementia, aphasia, and other communication disorders through clinical practice, quality improvement projects, teaching, and research. As a speech-language pathologist, she specializes in improving access to the ability to communicate one's feelings, preferences, and needs to support relationships. She is currently engaging in work related to pragmatic clinical trials and learning health systems. Welcome, Dr. Douglas. We are so happy to have you on Keys for SLPs to talk about keys to interprofessional collaboration to improve dementia care. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we are so excited to talk about this topic. It's so important. So before we do that, though, tell us about your journey as an SLP and how you became interested in this research. Sure, sure. So I was probably in the minority in that I heard about speech-language pathology really early on, probably in early high school, and I never really departed from that path. So when I realized that it was something that had to do with both education and potentially the medical field, I just became hooked. And now all this time later, here I am. So I have a little bit of an interesting trajectory in that 
I worked full time for about 10 years and I also worked clinically during my PhD program. So I have a real passion for translating research to the real world. So I was very dismayed, if you will, at life. I was a skilled nursing SLP for a while, PRN, as well as working in hospital and outpatient and home health settings, especially in skilled nursing. I just felt such a pool of intention with knowing what to do, but not being able to do it and productivity standards and you know, all of the pressures that are on SLPs in that setting, I was really feeling. And that actually propelled me to kind of go back and try to see if there was anything from the research world that could help us contribute as better service providers in dementia. So that's really kind of how I got going in this particular line of work. That's great. So it was really your real world experience that as you were working and had these questions, you were like, I'm going to research this someday, or or those seeds were planted back then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it wasn't always, you know, happy seeds. It was really, I mean, it's just difficult. I don't know if we have anyone working in SNF settings listening, but it's a tough setting. I mean, it's really hard. And that definitely is what kind of propelled me down this path for sure. Well, that story is such an inspiration. So for anyone listening out there, if you're frustrated by something, just follow Natalie's lead and remember it and then research it and find a solution. So, all right. So this study, and we're going to talk about a lot of things, but we're going to start with the research study. So it was on interprofessional collaboration between SLPs and CNAs, and you called it a dementia collaborative coaching model. Is that right? That's right. Yep, exactly. Yes. So this really started from, you know, when I was in clinical practice, I noticed, you know, if ever I was to like suggest a communication strategy to a nursing assistant, or if I, you know, tried to do some education or coaching, you know, many times I would feel like there would be very little carryover, you know, to when I was had left the building. And I really questioned, I'm like, you know, what is it that I'm actually doing? I kind of feel like I'm just giving the nursing assistant more work to do without necessarily helping them per se. It it just didn't feel quite right. And so it's really was a lot of my clinical experience that like propelled me to explore some of this coaching literature. So The way that this started was here, I'm in Michigan at a skilled nursing facility here in Michigan. We started kind of piloting this program with me as the interventionist. So I was the speech language pathologist. And what we would do is try to set up a triad between myself, the person living with dementia, and the certified nursing assistant. And what we would try to do is have the nursing assistant identify a communication breakdown that was really getting in their way in terms of a job task that they had to do anyway. So for example, if the nursing assistant was having a hard time with dressing or feeding or showering or bathing, so we really tried to position that communication breakdown within 
something that the nursing assistant already had to do because the goal was that a communication strategy might make life easier for the nursing assistant, decrease their burden and help the person living with dementia so that it would hopefully be a win-win-win across the board. So when we first started this project, we did it in one nursing facility. As I said, I was the interventionist and we were able to do it with some positive results. Now, it was very logistically challenging because what we would try to do is get myself and the nursing assistant and the person with dementia kind of when the situation was happening. So let's say the communication breakdown was occurring when the person with dementia was dressing, we would try to employ a communication strategy like a memory aid or book or spaced retrieval training or something of that nature right in the moment so that we could kind of do that problem solving back and forth as opposed to, you know, here's this handout on communication strategies, go implement this when you're trying to help the person with dementia dress and then I'll see you when I come back tomorrow, you know? So we saw some really nice outcomes, but I still wasn't sure that this was totally feasible in the real world. So we had some funding from the American Speech Language Hearing Foundation to test kind of whether or not this had some feasibility with real life speech language pathologists. So that was kind of our next step in this line of work. This was in collaboration with Encore Rehab. So we were able to test this program in six different skilled nursing facilities. Most were in the either Midwest to Southeast United States. And we trained 12 nursing assistants with 10 people living with dementia. And so the idea, again, was that the nursing assistant and the speech language pathologist identify a communication breakdown that's really getting in the way of a smooth day for that nursing assistant and really work on it. So it's six sessions, and I'm happy to talk about those individual sessions if you want later, or people who are listening, you can actually download the treatment manual for free from my website, and you can see kind of what we did during every session. But It's promising to me to know that this program was able to be done kind of in the real world within the constraints of the busy lives of SLPs, especially considering COVID and how everybody is so short staffed. And it was just really promising to see that, okay, I think maybe this work is getting ready for a more rigorous clinical trial in that it was at least feasible to be done in the real world. Mm-hmm. So logistically, your biggest challenge, was it getting the session to be timed with the activity? I think so. I mean, and that's, you know, from what I heard from the SLPs that I was working with, the other challenge was that now in this post-COVID world, there's such short staffing issues. And we know from the literature, from best practice literature for people living with dementia, that consistent assignment is best care, meaning that 
the same nursing assistant is caring for the same person living with dementia consistently. But honestly, in many cases, that's almost laughable, especially after COVID. I mean, there's contract staff, there's all of these other issues that we're having to face in this sort of, that it was a situation that wasn't great before. And now it's almost even worse in many places across the country. So, you know, I think dementia care Interprofessional collaboration, it's so relationship-based. And I think it's really difficult without that trust, you know, between the nursing assistant and the person living with dementia, between the SLP and the nursing assistant. In the absence of that trust and relationship, this work is so extremely difficult. So that, in addition to logistically trying to figure out a schedule for when this would work, you know, the lack of relationship in some cases due to being short staffed was also a really big challenge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So did you then select the patients for the study and then whoever the CNA was that day would be the person who would participate? Exactly. So what we would try to do is that we recruited the speech language pathologist first and then the next step was for that speech language pathologist to kind of look and see, okay, who from a person living with dementia standpoint, who seems like they might benefit, who is a nursing assistant that we think would be kind of open to this. And again, we did have a small amount of funding. So the nursing assistants and the SLPs were able to get, you know, $100 Amazon gift cards. But again, that's not enough, you know, to really maintain a quality, sustainable workforce. So we're really kind of working against systemic issues. But in the data that we were able to collect, that's exactly what happened. So the SLP was like, I think this person with dementia would benefit. This nursing assistant really seems to kind of jive with this person living with dementia. I think this would be an awesome match. And then we kind of went from there. Okay, great. All right. Well, if we've worked in in SNFs, we've all seen what can happen when people are working synergistically as a team and uh, can really help the families and the people living with dementia or whatever communication disorder we're working on. But we've most of us, if we have worked in a SNF, have seen the opposite of that as well. So that is why I was so excited to have you here today to talk about this. So let's talk about some of the challenges that, or, or just the job responsibilities of CNAs in the skilled nursing facilities. Right. And, you know, this was really eye-opening to me. And I find it interesting because I actually have several future speech-language pathologists as students, some of whom are working as nursing assistants now. And so I feel like those folks are really poised to make a huge impact because they they get it. They understand. And I know when I was first starting out, I did not understand at all what the responsibilities and the roles that nursing assistants had, you know. And so now, you know, we know that nursing assistants, they're responsible for the majority of hands-on care. And what is extremely frustrating is, let's say that census is down, nursing assistants are the first people to be sent home, you know, so it's not like I'm going to be having this, oh, an easier day because census is down. It's almost like the system as it stands is designed to just keep the pressure on nursing assistants. And so they have all these various job responsibilities, but 
they don't have authority when it comes to decision making. You know, we know that they're paid less. We know that they often feel like they don't have enough training, especially now in this world of there not being enough staff. So what we're trying to do with this model is to, as SLPs, of course, you know, we're trained in cognitive communication, swallowing voice, motor speech, all the areas that we are trained in and our expertise really lies in. But what we're also trying to think about is how can we support nursing assistants who really do kind of know the resident or the person living with dementia best because they're with them all the time. They are the ones that are there 24 hours a day in some form or fashion, moving forward with dressing and feeding and toileting and all of those daily tasks. And so the idea behind dementia collaborative coaching is how can we maybe share that burden? And I know that depending upon which facility you're in, you know, some facilities cross train so that SLPs are able to toilet and transfer, you know, they have that type of training, whereas in other facilities, you know, SLPs do not have that type of training. But I think even if we don't have training for transfers or toileting or some of the other aspects, I think sometimes it can be a matter of just kind of approaching the situation with some humility. And maybe it's a matter of helping somebody make the bed or take the trash out or pass a tray, you know, as a way to kind of show that we are invested within the healthcare system as a whole and within all of the pieces that occur during patient care. And believe me, I know that this is easier said than done and that a lot of these factors are not billable time, and that's a whole kind of other can of worms. But what we're trying to explore with this program is this really should be billable because the resident is present, the nursing assistant is present, we're providing a skilled service. And so if it works out that we're somehow able to kind of share some of that burden and take some of that burden from the nursing assistant, then hopefully, as you said, you know, that would result in better outcomes for everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's true. So I didn't realize so that when you were doing this study, this was all non-billable time for the therapist? Well, that's a really good question. And I did not ask that question well enough. We did not capture that. I would say that about half of the sessions were billable in this particular study, probably about half were not because it logistically didn't exactly work out. So I know the potential is there because some people were indeed able to bill, but that's definitely an area that we need to kind of shore up for future work, certainly. Okay. Okay. Well, tell us about some of the other outcomes of this project. Sure. So one of the things that I think was really interesting, and again, those of us who, you know, work with people with dementia, some of the communication breakdowns or the areas where nursing assistants asked for support. So these were things like toileting, washing face and hair, repetitive questioning. So we know that this is a huge issue for people living with dementia. So 
you know, and this was something that our CNAs in this study, they were just, you know, it would just really make them so frustrated to have the person living with dementia ask them the same question over and over and over again after the nursing assistant would answer them. Another breakdown, we had a resident who would just go around and tap people, like physically tap people due to, it was just a repetitive behavior, clearly, you know, an unmet need of some kind. And so the nursing assistant was asking for some support with that. Wandering was a really big issue. We had somebody who was like rattling the bed rails over and over again. So we were really trying to tap into from the nursing assistant perspective, you know, what is kind of really making your day horrible <laughs> in terms of education <laughs> and how can we support you? What a sophisticated research question, but so <laughs> important, right? Exactly, exactly. You know, exit seeking. We had residents who were like taking personal items out of other residents' rooms. And I think, again, those of us who are in this sniff club were like, yep, yep, yep. These are probably all things that people have experienced, you know, dining transitions, restlessness, hoarding. So these were all areas that nursing assistants primarily reported wanting support from in terms of SLP intervention. So, you know, what worked? What was kind of most helpful in terms of communication strategies? So again, this program is kind of doled out across six weekly sessions. And what kind of rose to the top was supporting the resident in developing a consistent routine. And usually this involved tying a meaningful or purposeful activity to a mealtime. So again, those of us in that SNF environment understand that the world kind of rises and falls with the meal schedule, right? So it's like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So trying to, after breakfast, really intentionally try to develop a person-centered, meaningful activity for the person living with dementia and kind of tying that to communication. Visual reminders like signs and schedules were extremely helpful. Auditory reminders such as alarms were helpful. Having materials that really related to topics of personal relevance and interest. So these could be anything from meaningful photos or personal items. So having that nearby so that people would know, okay, this is an awesome way to redirect Mrs. Jones through this photo album or through this magazine, but having those kind of person-centered materials nearby. Using humor was something else that was really helpful. Some other aspects that might seem sort of basic, but that our study participants reported to make a real meaningful difference were turning off the TV, turning off the roommate's TV, having a quieter environment, opening the blinds so it's not so dark in there, and really trying to set the environment up in a way that supports communication. Speaking in really direct messages, we have a quote here from one of the nursing assistants in the study, and she talked about how she realized the 
major difference it would make when she said, now I know I need to explain what I'm going to do before I do it. So I show them and invite them to participate. So if you think about, you know, a person living with dementia, and again, I get it, short-staffed, not enough time, you know, but as opposed to kind of busting in and like taking blood pressures, taking sugars to really approach things much calmer, slower, more direct, maybe show a memory aid of this is what we're going to do. I'm going to take your sugars because the doctor's worried about your diabetes and we want to make sure that we're getting you what you need to keep you healthy and to keep you out of the hospital, right? Just that 15, 20 second approach really made a big difference. Staying calm was something that came up in our data, really slowing down, repeating some of those keywords. One of our nursing assistants talked about how it made such a difference to speak directly to the person living with dementia. And again, you know, these are all strategies that we as SLPs were like, yeah, we know this. But I think sometimes getting that message across to other care providers can be extremely challenging. So aspects such as smiling, not talking too loud, validating the person living with dementia's feelings and being positive and encouraging, providing choices, allowing time, not presenting too much information at one time. So these are all strategies that I think any of us SLPs could easily identify as being helpful, but to hear this information kind of coming back from the perspective of the nursing assistant really shows us that, you know, when these strategies are actually put into practice, it can make a really big deal and a huge impact on not just the person living with dementia, but the nursing assistant too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Because as you said, this improved their day, improved their job environment by having this positive interaction and feeling like they're helping versus they're at odds. Everything that you just described as being helpful, all of that was feedback actually from the the nursing assistants, not necessarily from the SLP telling you this was reported directly from the nursing assistants. Right. Exactly. So this was a lot of their feedback that they presented back to us, which is really exciting, I think. So through your literature review and then your research, how much training on these strategies do CNAs typically get and did the CNAs in the study have prior to this? Right. So I would say that the majority of nursing assistants in our study really did not report much training in this area at all. And, you know, I think that depending on the facility, also depending upon the state. So a lot of nursing assistant training is kind of governed by the state. So here in Michigan, there's not a lot of dementia specific training. And again, if you undergo like a didactic training, like a webinar or something of that nature, it can be really difficult to make that leap to what does this look like in my real life? You know, how is this going to transfer? So the majority of nursing assistant participants in this study 
reported that they had very minimal training, if any, and that they really learned on the job. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. So this really focused on person-centered care. So let's go back and talk about person-centered care. What is your definition of person-centered care? Right. So to me, person-centered care is really looking at that person as a fellow human being first before their dementia, before what's wrong with them, before assessing what they can or in many cases cannot do, but thinking of them as a fellow human being who is worthy of love and belonging and dignity, just like any other human being. And it's really trying to tap into their ability to participate in their environment as much as they can with the least amount of suffering as possible. So, I mean, I think this person-centered care is really about allowing the person living with dementia to call the shots, to decide when they want to wake up, when they want to go to bed, what they want to eat, how they want to spend their time. It's allowing them to be autonomous for as long as they can and having us as healthcare providers support them, maybe even in some cases when we might not make the same decisions, you know, and I think that if we reflect ourselves, you know, we all are kind of balancing the risk versus autonomy situation all the time. It's like, I should do this for my health, but I really want to do this instead, right? So we're kind of doing that back and forth, but we don't, as adults, necessarily only want to be safe. We want to be autonomous. You know, we want to do what we want. And so I think if we consider person-centered care, it's really putting that person and their needs and their wants and their desires, as well as those of their families and care partners, you know, let that kind of drive the bus. And then everything, you know, kind of falls into place after that, because I think we're really in danger of kind of, especially for people living with dementia, of kind of objectifying these people and really taking away their dignity. And it's just really can lead to a lot of negative consequences, I think. And Mm -hmm. it has in many cases. So it is important because failure to do so has consequences. You talked about loss of autonomy, but also loss of social roles and isolation, which we know can exacerbate the dementia. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. All right. So if you had to pick three components of person-centered care that are the most salient, the most important, what would those be? Right. So I think the first would be how much is the person living with dementia able to participate in their environment and be involved in their decision-making. And this can be anything from medical decision-making to what do I want to eat that day, right? So it doesn't have to be, when we're talking about participation and involvement, you know, it can be in relationship to 
major life decisions and plans of care decisions, but it can also be about those little things that we choose all the time. Like, do I want coffee today? Do I want tea today? What am I in the mood for? You know, those types of questions. I think, you know, the level that that person is able to participate and be involved in their environment and in their decisions. I think the next component of person-centered care that's really critical is that relationship. So it's that relationship that we have between us as healthcare providers and that person living with dementia and their family. And again, I do acknowledge the system barriers that we are really up against here because sometimes it can be really difficult when there are so many time and other pressures on us as professionals to really keep that relationship at the forefront. But I think many of our healthcare decisions can be supported if that relationship and if that trust is there. And then I think, you know, the final component that I think is very critical in terms of person-centered care is the context of where that care is delivered. So we've been spending quite a bit of time this evening talking about skilled nursing facilities because that's where this project took place. But we know that people, the majority of people living with dementia actually live at home. So again, those of you working in the home health environment, people who are living with dementia in independent living with services environments or assisted living environments, as we said, home, those people living with dementia who may have a urinary tract infection and end up, you know, back into the hospital, right? All of those settings are contexts where we are delivering care, you know, so we want to be thinking about what does person-centered care look like in this context, you know, and I think that many of us have had experiences where we might work with somebody living with dementia in a assisted living facility, let's say, and then maybe they're transferred to a hospital setting And they come back and it's like, oh my gosh, what happened, right? They're almost a totally different person. You know, it was so disorienting and it was just a very disjointed set of care. You know, in the hospital, many times we don't know, you know, what is this person's baseline? What is normal for them? And so I think considering the context of where that care is being provided is another kind of component of person-centered care for us to try to be thinking about. Okay. Okay. Thank you. How do you see person-centered care positively? How did you see it positively impact the people with dementia? So we talked about the CNAs and what they reported, which was very positive, but how about the people living with dementia? Right. So this was really interesting. We actually used a scale in this particular study known as the Cohen Mansfield Agitation Inventory. And what this scale is, it lists 29 behaviors that are considered to be responsive behaviors, meaning that theoretically, we believe that this behavior is coming from a place of an unmet need 
of the person living with dementia or the person living with dementia does not have a functional way to communicate something. So instead they are yelling or they are spitting or they are hoarding items or they are lashing out verbally or they are engaging in repetitive questioning. So this inventory in this measure, it has 29 behaviors And what it asks health providers to do is over a period of time, kind of how often are you seeing this type of behavior? So are you seeing it like multiple times an hour? Are you seeing it once a week? Are you seeing it, you know, once every couple of weeks, right? And so you give the person that behavior a rating based on your observation of that person living with dementia in everyday life. So what was really exciting to me in this study, and again, I know we're working with a really small sample here, but we really were able to see those negative or responsive behaviors go down after the program. So for those of you that are interested in the numbers of this. So if we averaged all of those negative responsive behaviors together at the beginning of the study or pre-dementia collaborative coaching for all 10 participants, we had about 73 negative behaviors. And that went down to about 59 negative behaviors after the study. So are we completely getting rid of these behaviors after six weeks? Absolutely not. But are we moving in the right direction? I think so, right? And again, the goal is to address behaviors, which I think, and I'm sure many of us listening probably agree that whenever behavior is communication, right? So when people are engaging in a behavior of any kind, it's more than likely an attempt to communicate. So we were able to see, you know, those negative behaviors go down. And then we also started to see some increased reports of engagement. So quotations such as this person used to kind of hang out in their room all day. Now they are much more agreeable to participating in maybe a group activity or even to kind of come out of their room and hang out for a little bit after we were able to kind of tailor the activity a little bit more to the person's interests, right? Because we know not everybody likes bingo. Not everybody likes these group activities that people with what I think are very, very well-intended people. They just don't necessarily know what else to do to engage the person, especially in a really tough environment like a skilled nursing facility. So we were able to see kind of a drop in some of those negative responsive behaviors and an increase in some of the behaviors that we would love to see for people living with dementia. You know, things like engagement, things like they seem to be enjoying life more, their affect is more positive. You know, that's really trying to increase the joy that is available in that present moment, you know, that's what we want. That's really what we're going for, I think, with this population. Absolutely. And those are exciting results for sure. Now, just a clarification, who filled out those surveys? That's a great question. So these were filled out in this particular study, a combination between 
the nursing assistant, a collaboration between the nursing assistant and the SLP. Okay. Together. Yeah. Well, that's great. So anything else you want to add about the study? Because we're going to move on to some other topics. Yeah, no, I'll just let people know again that my, I don't know if I said my website, it's practicalimplementation.org, which I know is a handful, (laughs) like practicalimplementation.org. And if you go under download materials, you can download the manual that we used in this particular study. And there's a manual. So the way that we did this, the SLPs had a manual and the nursing assistants also had their own manual. So we could kind of keep track together and work with the person living with dementia and kind of stay on the same page. So if you think you don't have to use it exactly how we did it, but if you think that some of the strategies and the ways that we kind of broke down the six sessions might be helpful to you, feel free to give that a download for sure. Well, thank you. That's so nice of you to share that. And and that's a great way to put research into practice right away. So thank you. So as we were preparing for this episode, you used a term which was very clever, but very important. And that was flip the rehab model. So can you tell us what you mean by that? Yes. So one of my mentors, Dr. Michelle Bourgeois, and one of my also, I consider her a mentor, colleague, friend, as well as Becky Kayam, who also work in the dementia and memory care space, brought this term as well as one of my colleagues, Dr. Ellen Hickey, brought this term to me, flip the rehab model. And I never really fully understood it completely until I kind of talked to them about it reflected on what this might be, you know, in my clinical practice. And here's what helped the light bulbs go off for me. So I think when I was practicing full-time clinically, and it was time for me to do an evaluation or an assessment on a patient, the first thing I would do would say, what test am I going to give? Right? So like, am I going to give the MOCA? Am I going to give the ABCD? Am I going to give like a subtest from a couple of these? You know, what test am I going to give? And it was really Dr. Bourgeois who challenged me to say, like, essentially, why are you doing that? You know, instead of choosing the test, why don't you just go talk to the person first, find out what it is that they want from skilled speech therapy intervention services. And then that's how you build your assessment. Okay, so let's say, for example, we go and chat with somebody living with dementia. It's asking them directly and or their care partners, either their professional care partners or such as nursing assistants, as we've been talking about, or even family care partners, And we're asking them, you know, what do they need? What are the preferences and needs of this person and their family? And then we start to think, you know, what, where might I find this information? So in this case, you know, how do I get this information? It could be as simple as an interview. You know, it could be a preference assessment. So preference-based living. This is Dr. Kimberly Van Heitzma and Dr. Katie Abbott have a site known as Preference-Based Living, and they have a lot of free, open-access, preference-based assessments that allow you 
to assess the preferences of the families and the people living with dementia that we're working with. And then another place to start would be, you know, what unmet need might be being communicated? And we talked about this a little bit. So it's kind of looking at the person's responsive behaviors, observing them, looking at behavior logs that maybe nurses have or that fit patterns of behavior that families have noticed and letting that drive assessment, right? So it's like, if my person would benefit from, let's say, an auditory or a visual cue to support their participation, I better assess if they can hear an auditory reminder, right? I better assess if they can see a visual reminder. And if they can, you know, what is the best font size to work with, right? Because not many of our people living with dementia are able to read at this tiny 12-point font, right? Maybe they need to be at 24 point or 36. And then that's going to help to drive my intervention. And it's a way more functional assessment. So thinking about, and I'm not saying that there's never a place for a standardized test, but if we start with what does the person want? What do they need? And then assess what do they need to get there? We can oftentimes end up in a much more functional place, I think, than, you know, because we all know, we know that the MOCA and these other tests, I mean, they have their uses and I don't want to seem like I'm bashing them. I'm really not, but that's not going to give you a functional therapy goal for somebody living with dementia, especially a person-centered one, right? So it's going to tell you a score, And it's going to meet potentially, you know, a Medicare or other third party payer requirement, but that's not going to help in therapy, right? But if I pull back and really think about what does this person really need or want, maybe instead I'm going to assess the environment, right? I'm going to look at the communication environment and assess that. It's too dark in here. There's not enough lighting. There's not enough invitation to purposeful and meaningful activity. That type of assessment can lead more directly into functional intervention. So that's essentially what we mean by flipping the rehab model. It's kind of starting from what we think is possible based on the needs and preferences of the person and then kind of working backwards. Well, that is excellent, excellent suggestions. It makes 100% sense. It also is a lot better for establishing that rapport with the Mm. patient, which can certainly affect future success in their participation. But how does that get documented? And the useful thing with the MOCA is then you have that standardization Mm -hmm. with all your patients if if you use something like the MOCA or another standardized assessment. So... How do we make this work? Yeah, this is the question, right? This is the question that we're all kind of grappling with. And I think that, so I can give some suggestions on 
what that might look like in terms of goal writing, like for right now. And then I can give maybe some dreams that I have for the future. That's hopefully not too far in the future. So in terms of right now, what we have to do, right, we have to document progress or maintenance, progress in function or maintenance of function. So none of us are going to be curing dementia, unfortunately, right? But what we're going to do is we're going to increase participation, increase access to communication, and increase a person living with dementia's ability to participate in their environment as independently as they can. So if we're kind of rooted in those factors, when we think about documenting, we want to maybe explore other ways of measurement. So it could be something as simple as counting frequencies, right? So it's like, I want to up the frequency of these positive engaging behaviors, and I want to decrease the frequency of negative responsive behaviors. So maybe you have a goal that says, you know, after lunch, Mr. Smith is going to interact, is going to engage with a memory book or a desired meaningful activity for 15 minutes. Okay, these are not necessarily percent accuracy goals, but these are goals in terms of increasing the behaviors that we want, decreasing the behaviors that we don't want. Maybe there is a way to think about interactions in terms of number of conversational turns. So instead of just having one, you know, hi, how are you? I'm good, right? Maybe a goal would be to go two, three, four turns, right? Maybe your goal is to improve safety in the environment. So you could use a technique such as space retrieval training, and you could connect that to something that physical therapy or occupational therapy is working on. And you could kind of collaborate with our other kind of rehab specialties and say, I'm going to use space retrieval training and maybe an external memory aid to increase the amount of times that my patient puts the brake on their wheelchair before they try to transfer up. Right. So it's like using really functional day to day things, trying to get more of those behaviors and really kind of working as a whole, which I know, again, can be easier said than done. Another thing that we do, in addition to kind of counting behaviors up or down, is using Likert rating scales. So we, you can make like your own rating scale, operationalize it from one to five. Dr. Ellen Hickey and I, We have a book with plural that kind of outlines some ways that you can use Likert scales to identify, you know, whether or not you see any change, right? So it's like, one, I participated in this activity fully, or actually, I'd probably reverse it to one, I did not participate in this activity at all, it was horrible, to five, I really engaged in everything in between. So you could have the person living with dementia fill that out. You could have staff fill that out and report that. So it's kind of getting creative in terms of our measurement, 
thinking about level of cueing, you know, how much support does this person need to engage in this functional behavior? Is it mild, moderate, you know, those types of levels of cueing that I think we're all a little bit more familiar with. But what I think really needs to happen is this type of goal writing in terms of person-centered care and documentation, this has got to be embedded into the medical record and into our electronic record keeping of what we're doing. So when we think about EPIC, when we think about point-click care, when we think about the outline of these, you know, because everything is an electronic medical record now, we need to look at the larger system here because we can do, and I know we do everything we can as individual SLPs, but we also have some system level situations. So if we were prompted from the medical record to administer more of a person-centered treatment, right, I think that we would all love that. You know, I think that most SLPs, when we talk about person-centered care, functional communication and goals, SLPs are like, yes, 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 that's what I want to do. This, That's what my intuition and that's what my, the evidence is telling me to do. But you feel, we feel very blocked in terms of documentation. So I think if we really take a hard look at some of our medical records and think of a way that we can embed some of this practice more within that, I think that's really going to help us to change in a more positive way at a systems level. And I know that in some of those systems, you have those boxes for annotating and you kind of annotate your own goal. And I know many of us are doing that. And that's definitely one way to do it for sure. But I think there's probably a way to make person-centered care even more automatic when we think about the electronic medical record system. So that I would love to see that kind of move forward in the future as well. Absolutely. That could be another research project for you. Right. (laughs) So I know we want to get into some case studies, but can you kind of go through those six weeks, just take a few minutes to overview what the model is to give people a little bit more information. I know this is also in the handout and the handout is available to anyone who is listening through speechtherapypd.com. And then also you gave the reference if someone is listening through a podcast platform, then they can use your website. Perfect. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So in the first session, the nursing assistant and the SLP and the person living with dementia, that's when it's let's identify the most kind of troublesome communication breakdown, right? So that kind of happens during that first session. Then trying to figure out, logistically speaking, when we want to meet for the next six weeks. Then, you know, as the SLP kind of giving the intent of the program and what the program is designed to do, it's designed to decrease care partner burden and increase communication. And then the next thing that happens in session one is there's a list of multiple communication strategies. So the idea would be that the nursing assistant and the SLP kind of work together and kind of go through that larger list of communication strategies and kind of circle or you don't have to circle them, but just kind of highlight whatever you want to do, kind of think through, okay, which of these 
broader communication strategies seem like they would be most helpful for this particular person living with dementia. And that's kind of the starting point. And then in session two, we would really try a couple of those communication strategies in the moment. So again, as we talked about, if it's during dressing or bathing or washing hair or whatever it is, really try to implement those strategies and then really reflect on what is working well, what is not working well, maybe trying a new strategy if needed. And so essentially in all six sessions, there's kind of two things going on. The first thing is that we are problem solving in the moment, a communication breakdown and a communication strategy, and then taking a step back and like reflecting on what worked really well, what is like, no, we're never doing that again, and what we might do, try in the future. So there's that angle, but then there's another aspect that we try to work in. So for example, in the second session, we talk to the nursing assistant and the person living with dementia about vision and hearing supports. Okay. So now it's like, let's get the glasses and the hearing aids maybe out of the drawer, maybe out of your pockets. Maybe we clean the glasses because they haven't been cleaned in maybe six months. Maybe we change the hearing aid batteries, right? Because who knows how long the batteries have not been working. Maybe the person does not have access to hearing aids. So instead, we offer a $100, $150 personalized listening device, something like a pocket talker to just amplify the sound. So speaking to the nursing assistant and the person living with dementia about the importance of Really, as much sensory information that that person living with dementia can get in, we want it to get in. So whatever we can do in terms of vision and hearing, we want to do that. In the third session, in addition to piloting communication strategies and reflecting on that, we take any necessary actions for those vision and hearing supports. So many times... It's a matter of taking a box and writing real big on it, glasses, so that the glasses stay out as opposed to being hidden somewhere. And then we try a listening device, let's say, for example. And so when you have something like a pocket talker, for example, many rehabs will have a couple of those. You can get your rehab manager because they're so inexpensive and they can be used on multiple residents to just kind of up the sound a little bit. And again, does it work for everybody? Absolutely not. But can it be super helpful to some people? Kind of a low risk intervention? Absolutely. During the fourth session, we again work through the communication breakdown, but we also start to talk about external memory aids. And this could be anything from signs, reminder cards, visuals, they could also, memory aids could also be auditory in nature. So alarms, things of that nature. In session five, we really try to introduce what's known as a positive communication approach. So this is from Dr. Michelle Bourgeois. And 
it's a five step approach where you're using the person living with dementia's name. You're approaching them from the front. You are inviting them to the activity or whatever it is that you want them to do. You're showing them a memory aid or some other type of, in addition to your verbal explanation, some other type of visual or other explanation for what it is you want them to do. So we try that out. And then in the last session, we really reflect on any meaningful or purposeful activities that might kind of support redirection or engagement or quality of life for the person living with dementia. And then really, we also kind of talk about in that last session, ways to connect that meaningful activity and embed that into a routine. So we talked kind of earlier this evening about connecting to mealtimes and trying to kind of embed some of that meaning and purpose into routines. So it's also a really great time to kind of solicit any other feedback from the nursing assistant. And what I think is really cool is that over the course of these six sessions, the goal is that a relationship really starts to develop and that that trust starts to develop and that, you know, the SLP and the CNA can realize like we are all on this same team, you know, kind of working together and that can hopefully facilitate additional positive interactions as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that breakdown. That is very helpful. And I know we're running short on time, but we can go over a little bit here. I know you had prepared some case studies and it's always my favorite part of the episode to go through some case studies. So why don't we see what we have time to do? Let's start with your favorite in case we don't have too much time. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So my favorite case study that really kind of encompasses a lot of what we've been talking about today is There was a man and the biggest kind of communication breakdown was him urinating all of the time, all over his clothes. And he had the ability to get up and go to the restroom almost independently, but it was always too late you know, and so he would already have urinate everywhere. And then this obviously is going to cause an issue for the nursing assistant in terms of having to change the person. And it's, you know, the person obviously living with dementia does not want to live that way either, you know, so it's just kind of a lose-lose. So this very brilliant speech language pathologist, what we were able to get this person is I don't know if anybody listening has heard of Rosie the Reminder. So she's an alarm clock that you can program to speak certain things. So you can tell, you know, like every couple of hours, it can say it's time to go to the bathroom. And so what's nice about Rosie the Reminder, it's got a nice visual display. You can program up to 25 messages to go at different times. Now, for those of you listening and you know, you can do very similar things like this with like an Alexa or like Google Home or, you know, all of these kind of home services that are out there now. But 
what I like about Rosie is if you don't have like a Wi-Fi situation, so if you're not living at home and you're just in the nursing home, Rosie is just like a battery or a plug into a wall and you just record it. So anyway, after working on initiation and spaced retrieval and using a lot of skilled therapy techniques and training, this SLP and nursing assistant, they were able to train this person living with dementia to use the restroom every couple of hours and really develop this new routine, which spilled over, you know, into improving everybody's work environment. It helped him live with more dignity. And it was just a really beautiful kind of application, I think, of what can happen when we are working in collaboration with one another with our kind of skilled services. So it just made me really happy and grateful to know what skilled SLPs we have doing this type of work out there. So Oh, that is a great, great example. Thank you so much for sharing. I think we have time for maybe one more. Sure, sure. I'm happy to share one more. So another kind of I'm going to kind of go back to the pocket talker example, because I think that hearing healthcare is such a huge aspect with dementia care. And I think many times it's easy to kind of dismiss hearing healthcare because a lot of us, you know, hearing aids are really expensive. Although starting October 1st is when hearing aids are going to start to be over the counter. So I'll be really interested to see kind of what happens in terms of hearing care interventions for people living with dementia when it's not really feasible for many people to spend seven or eight thousand dollars on hearing aids when if they come down to five or six hundred dollars, you know, we might have much better access. But in this particular situation, there was just a massive concern of the person's hearing during daily activities or even just in getting ready for the day and getting dressed. And it was everybody was frustrated. And we were able to take again, just this very $125 personalized listening device. And it they are called pocket talkers because you can kind of put them in your pocket. But essentially, all it does is you put a, a headphone, the person living with dementia wears the headphone in their ear or an earphone. And then the person who's communicating kind of speaks into that little pocket microphone and the sound is amplified. And so this was something that was really short. So it took maybe five or 10 minutes to get this set up. And staff were reporting, wow, like when we use this personalized listening device with just one person in a one-on-one conversation, it's amazing how much quicker we can get dressed. It's amazing, you know, how much less frustration that there is, you know? So when I think about outcomes and measuring and documentation, you know, these are the components that I'm really interested in measuring when we think about simple solutions that might not work for everybody, but again, very low risk in the scheme of things, very low cost that can make a huge impact, not just on the person living with dementia, but also their staff. Absolutely. Uh, Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for bringing this research to us. And it's been so great to work with you on this. And 
I also wanted to tell our listeners that this is actually the second podcast that you've done for speechtherapypd.com. The first one was with Michelle Dawson and Aaron Forward on strategies to expedite research to practice. So, and you're also going to be coming back in December for a actual one and a half hour short course on communication coaching to support people living with dementia. So anything you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I just really appreciate any feedback that any of your listeners or anybody would have. And, you know, in the course, hopefully we can dive down a little bit deeper into maybe what some of the goal writing might look like and any other feedback that your listeners might have. I'm happy to incorporate that. I'm always most interested in what people have to say on the ground who are actually, you know, doing this work day in, day out. So I'm happy to have any feedback and incorporate that into the course, maybe. Well, thank you. So incorporate that in December. So if you have something you want to share now and and provide that feedback when you do your course evaluation, then we can give that to Natalie. And Natalie, will you also give your contact information one more time? Sure. So you can email me at natalie.douglas at c-m-i-c-h dot e-d-u. I'm on Instagram Natalie underscore F underscore Douglas. You can DM me, you can email me. And again, my website is practicalimplementation.org. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Douglas. It was so great to work with you. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. And as a reminder to our participants, if you are joining us for the live course and your state license requires live CEUs, be sure to go to your speechtherapypd.com account and complete all the course modules by the end of the day today. Great. Thanks so much, everybody. Well, thank you. Have a great evening, everybody. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.